Welcome, welcome to my second podcast. This is Kobe Hockelier. Welcome to episode two of, uh, I guess I don't have an official title, an intro to the mortgage world. Closings with Kobe, I guess, is uh, what I uh, settled on last week. Still a work in progress, but uh, I have to tell you, I'm much more nervous about episode two than I am about episode one. Episode one, I, I, I kind of just did it, um, decided to do it on the lark. Um, like I had mentioned in episode one, a good friend had inspired me and um, I didn't think anybody would care or listen. I didn't know if they did. I just felt like I wanted to get it out. And then all of a sudden, episode two, I know there's people listening and, and now it feels like there's pressure. And, and uh, the best way I can describe it metaphorically, yesterday I had the opportunity to take my youngest daughter skiing and it was her first time. She's five and a half years old. And it was my first time since I was 10. So over 30 years since I'd last been skiing. And, and that time I went when I was 10, I barely remember. I only remember uh, not being able to stop on the bunny slope and, and being afraid that I was going to crash right into the ski lodge, um, even though um, there was probably little chance of that. But I do remember having that fear. Um, and yesterday I, I, had a, I had a lesson. My daughter had a lesson. I had a lesson. And my teacher took me up and down the bunny slope a number of times and showed me how to, how to slow down, how to speed up, how to turn. And uh, after about 45 minutes or an hour of, of uh, instruction and technique, um, she said, I think you're ready to go up um, on a big mountain and uh, up on a ski lift. And I said, okay. And, and I had all the confidence in the world in being able to do that because she told me I was ready and I had no reason to doubt her. Uh, I felt good. I, I felt balanced. I, I hadn't fallen once during the lesson. And um, I was watching my daughter. She was doing great. And I thought, okay, I think, I think I'm ready for this. And went up on the ski lift. No problem getting on. No problem getting off. And then all of a sudden, we're on the mountain. And, and I'm looking down. And it wasn't particularly steep. I, you know, Obviously, she didn't start me on a double black diamond or anything like that. But whatever color is uh, the least... Um, daunting, uh, short of it being a bunny slope, was what this hill was. And I said, okay, I'm going to go down with uh, all the confidence in the world, you know, make my wedges, do my turns. Uh, lo and behold, I, I got out of control about 35, 40 seconds in, and I fell for the first time. No big deal. Got up. Uh, by the third time I, I had fallen, um, that was a big one. Uh, both my skis popped off, my poles were God knows where, um, and uh, it took me a little while to catch my breath. We were at 6,500 feet altitude. It took me a little bit of time to catch my breath and get my bearings. Um, and my teacher, God bless her, this little old lady who's probably 75, 80 years old, was trying to help me up, and, and I weigh 200 pounds. And so um, pure physics dictated that I was going to have to get up on my own, otherwise she and I were both going to be sitting on that mountain. And uh, finally I got up. At, at that point, I'd lost my confidence. I realized, you know, I was, I was okay on the bunny slope. I was doing fine. As soon as the big mountain, the big stage came, I had lost some of my mojo. And uh, I had uh, talked to my dad earlier today and told him about my experience. And I said it was, it was the equivalent, to add another metaphor to my metaphor that I'm already telling you about, equivalent of pitching in the bullpen and then getting called out into the stadium. And, and so episode two for me feels a little bit like um, all of a sudden now it's, it's a thing and people are noticing it. And that's great. And I thank you very much for listening and, and to all of you who uh, provided feedback this past week. I really do appreciate it. And um, I, uh, it took me a couple of extra days to get this episode out only because I, 
I, I thought about it a lot more than I did episode one, and and uh, I, I was I realized that that I was afraid to put it out because, um, you know, what if what if episode two was was a sharp decline? What from episode one? What if episode two was the big mountain compared to the bunny slope? So, I hope that. Uh, this long-winded story uh, about my skiing and, and podcasting resonates um, with uh, many of you out there who are in the real estate world, in the mortgage world, thinking about buying a house. Um, you know, it's uh, sometimes you just got to act, and, and when you do that without without fear, it works out really well. And then as soon as you let fear and doubt creep in, um, that's when you start to become paralyzed. So here I am right now. This is my big mountain. I'm skiing down. I'm a little out of control. We'll see how it goes. Um, and one thing that I wanted to share since, you know, I'm trying to figure out who's, who this podcast is talking to, but it's talking to you out there who's, who's either a loan officer or, or a realtor, <clears throat> excuse me, or um, someone looking to buy a house or, or someone who's been a client of mine over the past 22 years. Um, and, uh, but I wanted to share something that we can all relate to. And, and, that, and that's my first day at work. So my first day in the mortgage business. Um, in the real mortgage business uh, was June 1st, 1998. So I'm coming up on uh, June 1st, 2020 will be my 22, 22nd year anniversary in the mortgage business. Um, what a ride it's been. But my first day was June 1st, 1998. At the time, I was uh, not yet 21 years old. I was still 20. I would turn 21 in September of that year. So 20 years old, and I get a job. It's with uh, Fleet Mortgage, which is uh, at the time, not is, but was at the time, a major, major bank um, on the eastern seaboard um, from North, with branches and, and, and offices from North Carolina all the way into New England. And um, I was working in uh, West Hempstead, Long Island. And uh, I'll never forget my, my first day. And uh, I thought, well, it's my first day and I should wear a suit and tie. And uh, probably the last day... Uh, the first day that I wore a suit and tie, also probably the last day that I wore a suit and tie, um, specifically just to go to work. I've obviously worn them since for various occasions, but just to go to work. So I wear a suit and tie, um, and I'm uh, don't know what I'm doing. I, 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 you know, now it kind of seems foolish that I was 20 years old and even at work. It feels like I was a I was a child. I mean, I walked into work 10 years earlier from that day. I was in the fifth grade, and all of a sudden now I'm working at a bank. But I walk in and I remember I had a, a navy blue pinstripe suit and I had a, a, a tie, a dark tie on a white shirt and a dark tie that, that kind of was navy blue and purplish. I don't remember. Who knows if it even matched. Um, my, uh, you know, my brother is the dresser in the family. And uh, the first thing I did was get coffee because everybody was getting coffee in the morning. And so I went over to the coffee machine and, or the coffee pot or I don't even remember what it was. And I poured myself a cup of coffee and... Uh, Within about 30 seconds, I don't even think I'd logged into my computer at the time, which, which kind of seems funny. I, I know they gave me a laptop, but I'm trying to remember what a laptop looked like in 1998. And uh, I'm guessing it was about, you know, <laughs> three times the weight of a laptop today with about, you know, a, a, an eighth of the, uh, of the operating capability. Uh, when it, so before I even logged into the laptop, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking coffee and maybe I'm nervous. I don't remember exactly what was going through my head, but I, I spilled the coffee on my tie, right on my tie. Um, thankfully, it didn't really get on my shirt, but I remember it did get on my tie enough to the point where I had to take the tie off. So now I'd, I'd walked in wearing a suit, wearing a tie, and, and probably at 9 o'clock a.m. And, and at 9.03, I've already got coffee on my tie and I have to take my tie off. And so... 
I probably would have been better off coming into work not having worn the tie because now it looked like I came in with a tie and within three minutes I felt so comfortable that I was just getting undressed in the office. So I don't remember, I remember one guy making a joke about it, um, a guy who's still a friend to this day. I don't remember exactly what the joke was, but I remember where my desk was uh, opposite his and I remember him saying something about me taking my tie off and I was uh, a little bit embarrassed by the joke, but also I felt like he was making kind of a friendly gesture towards me. And um, uh, so that was, that was how I started my first day. I don't really remember the rest of that day. It was probably a blur, um, some sort of, uh, you know, I don't have the, a great memory for those kind of things, but I'll never forget um, getting coffee on my tie within the first two, three minutes of my first day having a real job. Um, so I'm sure some of you have similar stories. Well, I, I, I hope not many of you have similar stories, but uh, interesting stories of your first day at work. Um, so I was thinking about some things I wanted to talk about today and, and, and what the main thrust of, of today's podcast would be. And um, what I encounter just about every day in, in my life in the mortgage business are people's misconceptions. Um, and, and as I alluded to in episode one, the mortgage business it has been very different for me the last 10 years I've been in the business versus the first uh, 10 or 11 years I've been in the business, right? We went through this thing called the mortgage meltdown in 2007, 2008. And so it's kind of, uh, you know, been, been a different world. So there are a lot of misconceptions and, and um, there's misconceptions from younger people who, um, who saw their parents lose a ton of value in their homes and are, um, you know, reluctant now to, you know, to, to buy. There's misconceptions from older folks who remember how things were and now see how things are now and, and, and don't really know what changed and, and um, what, will, what has changed and what, uh, what they should expect as they come into the process. Um, so all day long, there's misconceptions. Uh, how much money do I have to put down? Um, what kind of credit do I have to have? Um, can I get a pre-qualification? Can I get a pre-approval? Um, you know, is a single family house the same as a two family house? How many units can I buy at once? Do I have to live in the house immediately for it to be considered a owner occupant house? Um, all of those things are, are, um, probably fall under the category of misconceptions. And I hear about them all day long. People have some notion of what's going on in the mortgage business because the mortgage business, uh, is out there. It's out there in the media. The media uh, was the one that came up with the uh, alliterative mortgage meltdown tag that got put on us uh, 10, 11 years ago. Um, and uh, so people get all their information on the internet and there's tons of information about mortgages. The problem is, is that there, the information is all over the place from so many different sources, from brokers, from correspondent lenders, from big banks. Um, and so I wanted to talk about the three biggest misconceptions that I hear on a regular basis about getting a mortgage. The first one is people ask me all the time, what's the difference between getting pre-qualified and getting pre-approved? Um, and, and this is a big one because uh, a lot of realtors that I work with don't tend to know the difference of it. And, and, and the reality is why should they? There's very little difference between a pre-qualification and a pre-approval. And the reality is that a lot of lenders um, interchange the terms uh, on a regular basis and uh, don't assign importance of uh, one over the other. Uh, but the reality is, is that a pre-qualification is the equivalent of you coming into my office, sitting down with me and telling me, Kobe, I've got $10,000 in the bank. I make $60,000 a year at my job. Um, I believe my credit is a 720 um, and I'd like to buy a house that costs $150,000. Can I do it? And then I say, okay, well, let's 
based on what you just told me, let's look at the numbers. What do you think the taxes of the home are? What do you think the insurance is going to cost? Okay, do you have any, that 720 credit score is good, but uh, do you have any uh, debt? Do you have a car Do you have a car note? Do you have uh, education loans? Do you have credit cards? Do you have installment loans? Uh, and, and, and it's just a conversation. And at that point, uh, me having been in the business for as long as I have and, and, and knowing um, what the numbers should look like, I tell you, okay, you're pre-qualified and, and, and depending on where I work, I can give you a pre-qualification letter. And that letter is really just based, it's almost garbage in, garbage out. It's whatever you told your banker, whatever you told me, and that's what I give back to you. Pre-approval is a little bit different, right? Pre-approval typically has credit run. So not only do we know the score, but we also know um, what's in the credit report. We know if there's any negative issues. A lot of times people, you know, tell you what's good about their credit. They don't tell you what's bad about their credit. They may not know, right? People don't look at their credit that often or as often as they should, even with the free tools that are out there to do it, which I recommend. Um, But somebody might have a collection from a doctor bill that insurance didn't cover fully. Um, Somebody might have a a tax lien from the state that they didn't know about because they owed $300 to the state on last year's tax returns and just, you know, didn't pay it or whatever. Um, So a pre-approval will look at the credit report We'll look at the credit score. We'll also look at your pay stubs or your tax returns, depending on whether you're salaried or self-employed. We'll look at your bank statements to determine if you have enough assets to buy and if those assets are in accordance with guidelines. We'll get into that in a different episode. Um, And then we'll also run it through what's called AUS, Automated Underwriting System. And and those are the the big investors for banks, Fannie and Freddie. Um, They use an automated system. So we put all of that information in there. They tell us if they like the loan. um, And then based on whether or not they like the loan, we then extend that credit to the the customer. And then when the loan closes, we sell it to Fannie or Freddie. They give us the money, which we then lend to somebody else. So that's how a very, very brief snapshot of how um, banks stay liquid, right? We, we, we are constantly replenishing the money that we lend out by selling the loan after it closes. So that's why some of these underwriting guidelines seem a little bit quirky, but they're because the big investors on the secondary market are trying to get the loans to look a certain uniform way so that they can pool them, commoditize them, and, uh, and sell them as, uh, as, as securitized uh, entities. Okay, so that's myth number one. So pre-approval is what you want. A pre-approval is strong. A pre-approval is a letter that you want to take uh, to your realtor, that your realtor can can go and make an offer on the house that you want. Okay, and typically a pre-approval will last about ninety days. The reason it lasts about ninety days is because in the mortgage business we consider a credit report to be valid for ninety days. So if the credit report's valid for ninety days, the pre-approval letter is valid for ninety days. Uh, myth number two. Uh, you need 20% down to buy a home. Absolutely not. This is the number one thing that I hear from people all the time. People think that because of the mortgage meltdown 10 years ago, that uh, the banks went from requiring no money down to 20% down. Not true at all. Now, do the banks still allow no money down? Absolutely not. That's gone. Uh, and, for, and, and with good reason, right? A lot of the houses that, that, that were part of the mortgage meltdown, and I say that with quotations around it, uh, were because people didn't have skin in the game, there was no equity in the homes, and so when push came to shove and their mortgage rate changed or their job position changed uh, or they're unemployed entirely, um, they weren't able to keep up with their payments and they made a little bit less of an effort to make those payments because they hadn't put a down payment down. Now, that being said, we're also not requiring 20% down. In fact, One of the things that has evolved in the last 10 years is Fannie and Freddie on a conventional mortgage has gone from requiring a minimum of 5% down to a minimum of only 3% down. 
So you can actually put less down now on a home with a conventional mortgage than you could have in 2005 and less down now than on an FHA loan, which is, which is what everybody considers to be the prototypical low down payment mortgage vehicle. So 5% down is still all, over, is all day, 3% down you can do um, as long as the credit's good enough. You, you, you can't do, if your credit is, is, is damaged a little bit, you're still gonna probably wanna go the FHA route. And even then you're only putting 3.5% down, but conventional mortgage is now minimum on a single family. 3% down. It's a great, great deal. And it's a great time to buy because um, equity is going up all over the place because everybody buying now has some sort of skin in the game. So the mortgage market, the housing market is more stable. Okay. Myth number three, and we just alluded to it in, in myth number two, you need perfect credit to buy a house. Um, people, you, people think that uh, if your score is not 780 or above, that the bank is not going to entertain a mortgage uh, from you. Now, Conversely, people also believe, and this might be called myth number four, that if your credit is above 780, that no matter what the rest of your circumstances are, the bank is going to lend you money. And that's, that's what I call the, 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 logical, um, the logical loophole that, that people make the mistake of assuming when they get into the mortgage process because they think that if something makes sense to them, that it automatically makes sense to the mortgage business. Not necessarily so. While it makes sense that if your credit's good and let's say you have a good down payment, you're probably a low risk, it doesn't, it doesn't tick off all the boxes for us. But you don't need perfect credit to buy a house. In fact, as I just alluded to, FHA is a viable option that will entertain borrowers with credit scores, uh, some as low as 580, depending on the circumstances. And that's a pretty low score. Um, the reality is we don't see a lot of those borrowers. They're not really in the market because they really feel like they can't get a mortgage. And, and, and the reality is that maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't. It's not for, for me to judge, but the reality is that that market is out there. And if somebody has a 580 credit score because of circumstances beyond their control, maybe they were sick and they got dinged up and down with medical collections and so their credit suffered, but they've got a good job, they've got a good down payment, um, they've got a good history of otherwise paying debts, uh, that person probably can and should get a house, right? Um, so you don't need perfect credit to get a house. Um, you, and and the, um, the reality is, is that most people don't have perfect credit. And, and the majority of loans that we make are to people who have some sort of ding on their credit from, from you know, some time ago, whether it be uh, a missed utility payment from a year ago uh, or, you know, a medical collection like we talked about or I've, I've mentioned several times now. Um, the only thing we really, really don't want to see that's, uh, you know, as far as a ding goes, we don't want to see late mortgage payments. Um, so in that sense, it's better to have perfect credit as just as far as mortgages go, perfect mortgage credit. We really don't like to see that you had a mortgage two years ago um, and you happen to, you know, miss a couple of payments at the bank because that tells us that you're probably going to do it to us, right? So as long as you have really good mortgage credit or, or if you've never bought before, as long as the rest of your credit is, is, is somewhat decent and you've got a decent down payment, you're, you're employable, um, you can probably get a mortgage to buy a home. Um, so those are the three biggest myths that I see out there. Um, and um, oftentimes, you know, buyers will, you know, go out there looking for homes and, and, and they'll be excited to go buy their first home. And um, before they get into the mortgage process, you know, all of a sudden they get into the mortgage process, same as me, going from the bunny slope up to the, uh, the big hill, right? Or I'll, I'll call it a mountain just to be kind to myself. Um, 
and, and they'll get cold feet because they'll think there's no way the bank is going to approve my loan. Well, the reality is, is that if you work with a seasoned loan officer uh, like me um, or like the people that I work with um, or the people that uh, I've known and come to love in this industry for over 20 years, really, really good salt of the earth people, um, there is help for you. There is a way to, uh, to buy a home. So again, uh, get a pre-approval versus a pre-qualification. Uh, you don't need 20% down to buy a home. You need three, right, with good credit. Uh, and you don't need perfect credit to buy a house. You need good credit, right? Um, you also don't want to have no credit at all. People, Some people think, well, my credit's good. I don't have any credit cards. I don't have any student loans. I don't have any car loans. I have no credit whatsoever. Well, we don't look at that as good credit. We look at that as no credit. And the reason that that's a negative for us is because that doesn't give us any history to work with. Um, you know, it's... it's uh, it's it's fantastic that you haven't gotten into trouble from a credit perspective, um, but it also doesn't tell us anything about how you interact with credit. So those are kind of the things that we look for. We look for a good credit history that's solid and a ding or two is okay because we understand that, that people are people. Um, I think that's it for my second episode. Um, and uh, I hope this topic was good. I have more exciting stuff to come. We're going to be doing some interviews coming up. A lot of people that I talked to expressed an interest in being interviewed for the podcast. So I'm excited for that. Uh, and you should be too. This way you're not hearing, you know, 20, 25 minutes of just my voice. Um, and um, you all know how to reach me. So if you have any questions or any topics you'd like discussed on this podcast uh, or any feedback, or if you just want to tell me I'm terrible and I should stop doing this forever, uh, always feel free to reach out. That uh, does it for me tonight. Um, and uh, take care of yourselves and we'll talk soon.